So we're continuing our series on revival stronger than ever, and today we're going to be talking about where to turn in your darkest moment. And we're going to be studying 2 Chronicles chapter 17 through 20, just taking bits out of there and looking at that, and uh, seeing exactly what a king named Jehoshaphat did. When I was about six years old, we were living in Kenosha, just moved there. In fact, when we moved into our house, our street hadn't even been paved yet. They hadn't put in the plumbing, the sewer, or anything else. We moved in before, as they were installing that. It was a brand new subdivision, and uh, it, was, it was kind of exciting. We had a big fields all around us, and, and uh, right after they put the streets in and the plumbings and all that kind of stuff, my parents, right before they split up, they gave me a bicycle. And it wasn't just any bike. It was like a racing bicycle. And when I mean racing bicycle, it had a number on the front, it had all kinds of decals on the side. It was made to look like an actual motorcycle. And I thought that was like the greatest thing on earth. I remember my parents had put up a fence around the house and I learned to ride the bike. I was sitting there just pedaling with my hand on the, on the fence and, and just wobbling down the street. Sooner or later, I was just pedaling all over the neighborhood. And, my, and that part of Kenosha at the time, there was hardly any traffic. We lived at the end of a cul-de-sac. So my mom felt pretty good about me riding my bike all over the place. There was just one rule. Is I couldn't go past 63rd Street to the south because then it turned into more of a major road. So I could run up and down. It was about two blocks long, two block long cul-de-sac. I could go over the place. I'd go in the field. I'd go there. I just couldn't go past 63rd Street. Well, one day I drove all the way to the end and was going to turn around, and I saw some kids over here across 63rd Street well, over there was another subdivision going in, and the construction company had piled all kinds of dirt into this field, and the kids in that neighborhood over there had made a dirt bike track. And they had hills, and they had moguls, and they had curves, and at the bottom of one of the big hills that they, the construction company just kept piling dirt on top of them from excavating the basements, there was a jump. And it wasn't just any jump, it was a big jump. I mean, you came off and you, I saw them catch serious air and they were jumping over a pit that they had dug. So, I mean, they look cool. I mean, these guys are just boom. But I couldn't go past 63rd Street. My mom was very, very clear, could not go past 63rd Street. So I'd watch them and I'd watch them and I'd watch them. And one day my mom kicked me out of the house. She worked nights. She said, I was making too much noise. She goes, go out and play, go ride your bike. So I said, okay, went out, rolled my bike, rolled down to the end of the block, saw the kids are jumping, jumping, jumping. I'm like, well, mom's sleeping. I think I could probably sneak over there. It's no big deal. You know, I'll just, I'll even be semi-obedient. I'll, I'll get off my bike and I'll walk it across the street because then I'm not breaking the rules. She told me not to ride past 63rd Street, the way my six-year-old six brain worked. So I figured I was still being okay, right? So I go over there, I make friends with these guys, they let me ride on their dirt track. So I'm riding over, I'm riding around, riding around, I pedal up, I pedal up the hill, pedal up the hill, get to the top, and to a six-year-old, I remember looking down this hill like I was about to jump off Mount Everest. I mean, it just looked huge. And I'm like, is this a good idea? And then all the kids were, you know, behind me calling me all kinds of names because I wasn't going. Of course, now I got to go, right? So I go down and I'm pedaling, I'm pedaling, I'm pedaling, I hit the jump. Nobody has ever taught me how to jump a bike before. I've never jumped off anything but a curb before this. I did not know that right as you hit the end of the jump, you got to pull back on the handlebars a little bit. 
I did not do that. So instead of sailing through the air and landing on my back tire and let my front tire come down, I went down into the pit. Front tire hit, I flew over the handlebars, found the one rock in the field to hit my head on. So I got a big old gash, blood pouring down my face. Everybody's freaking out. Somebody went and grabbed their parents. And um, I'm thinking, I'm trying to sneak home, right? I'm like, <laughs> you know, with my you know, blood pouring down my face and, and walking my bike trying to get home. Parents, their parents got me, brought me home, woke my mom up. Never wake my mom up. Um, to see her kid with a big gash on his head and blood pouring down his face, had to take me to the emergency room and I never saw that bike again. I think my dad sold it, I'm not sure. That was not an ideal situation for me because everybody, I was really popular because of that bike. And today, I want to introduce you to a man who also found himself in a situation that was not very ideal. He's actually one of the descendants of Asa. His name is Jehoshaphat, and he was the sixth king in the line after King David. Now remember that we're reading a book that was written by the prophet Ezra. And he wrote, writes Chronicles and he introduces Jehoshaphat this way. In 2 Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse 3, it says that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the, ways, in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his command. So the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. Then all Judah brought him tribute, and he had riches and honor in abundance. His mind rejoiced in the Lord's ways. Now this gives us the character sketch of who we're going to be talking about here. This is a man who was doing his best to walk after God. So this is a man that's about to have the entire world come crashing down on him. And what we'll learn from this is if you've ever been in a tight spot, if you've ever been in that kind of place where you don't know what to do, when you're facing an enemy who's bigger than you and can destroy all of everything that you hold dear, you'll really find Jehoshaphat to be your hero. Because Jehoshaphat faced all of that but humbly confessed, God, I don't know what to do. And he confessed it not just in his private prayer closet or when he was all alone on a hilltop somewhere. He said that in front of God and everyone. It just really showed his humility. And even though he had all this going on, even though he didn't know what to do, he did the exactly right thing eight times in a row. We'll look at all eight things in just a moment, but first I just want to open up in prayer. Father God, we're just facing a time in our lives, in our nation, where it just seems that there is nothing firm or foundational anymore. It seems like roots are being ripped up out of the ground. Things that we have trusted in for years have proven faulty. Things that, that we thought that would never, ever change and, and nobody would ever allow it to go this way have gone this way. But Father, we can hold on to your word. We can hold on to your character. We can hold on to your spirit and your direction in our lives if we merely humble ourselves and allow our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to hear your voice. 
Father, help us to learn that as we study the life of Jehoshaphat this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jehoshaphat's 35 years old when he became king. He reigned in Judah for about 25 years. Jehoshaphat's story spans two different wars and a really, really bad marriage. We'll talk about that next week, so uh, make sure you come back or at least listen online. Because that marriage and that decision almost wrecked his kingdom, and it almost stopped the plan of salvation. I'm just going to kind of give you that, that uh, preview. you have to come next week to see the rest of it. Because God had a promise to send the Messiah through the line of David, and Jehoshaphat almost messed that whole thing up. So that his story, and what we're going to be talking about this morning, starts in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 1 and 2, which says, After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, together with some of the Mennonites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from beyond Edom has come to fight against you. And they are already in Hazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Now, on the back of your bulletins this morning, you see a map and exactly what he was facing. All three of those nations coming around the bottom of the Dead Sea were coming against him. So he's outnumbered probably at least three to one. Now, how would you feel if you're Jehoshaphat? The kingdom has only relatively recently split in half. Israel's to the north. You're the king of Judah in the south. So you're facing... You have maybe a quarter to a third of all the Israelites with you. And now you have three nations coming against you. And when we're talking about warfare back then, we're not talking about, okay, we surrender and everything will be okay. It was, they are coming to pillage, to destroy, to carry you into, into captivity and to do really bad things to the women and children. I mean, this is what he is facing. And it says that in verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid and he resolved to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast for all of Judah who gathered to seek the Lord. They came from all the cities in Judah to seek God. So Jehoshaphat, facing the imminent destruction of everything and everyone that he's responsible to protect, does three strategic things during this dark moment. Number one, he resolved to seek the Lord. Number two, he called for a fast. Number three, he gathered the people. These are three things that we can do when we're facing our dark moments. And fortunately, I think Jehoshaphat had learned something from his ancestor Asa. And last week we learned about God's promise to Asa, that the eyes of the Lord roam throughout all the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted for him. So at the first sign of danger, you saw this word inside of Jehoshaphat come and spring to life because he went and sought the Lord. And it says in the Bible that his heart was fully devoted to the Lord. And to deepen his commitment, he called a fast. And when you fast, what are we usually thinking about when we fast? Boy, am I hungry, right? Fasting is really meant to separate you from everything that can bring us pleasure. Obviously, food gives some of us more pleasure than others. But it separates you from all those things that 
that you run to to give you comfort and instead you can and now excuse me now you can hear God because you don't have all this other noise drowning him out Jehoshaphat then gathers the people together why does he do that because there's strength in numbers Proverbs says that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor and Jesus said that who where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there in the midst. So having godly people around you during these times is a must to help keep you focused on God. But after these three critical things, Jehoshaphat does a fourth strategic thing, in that he prayed. In verse 5, it says that Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. He said, Lord God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in your name and have said, if disaster comes upon us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you, for your name is in this temple. And we will cry out to you because of our distress, and you will hear and deliver. So here are the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look now how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes out to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. Jehoshaphat, in his prayer, reminds God of who he is and what he's done for them in the past. He says, you rule with power. You've been there for all the descendants of Abraham. And Jehoshaphat reaffirms their commitment to the Lord. He said, we've built your sanctuary. We've worshipped you there. And now we're crying out to you right from your sanctuary. And then he presents the problem. He says, we're being invaded by a people who we had mercy on once. We could have taken that army that we had built up and wiped them off the face of the earth, but by your word, we left them alone, and look how they're repaying us now. The climax of Jehoshaphat's prayer is a prayer that I've probably prayed hundreds of times, especially in 2020. And that is, we do not know what to do, but we look to you. How many people that's been their breakthrough, that's been their, their prayer in the last couple of years? I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. God, we didn't cover this in, in Bible school. No college classes on pastoring through a pandemic. No college classes on, on having a, almost a civil war in our nation and trying to pastor through that. I wasn't trained for this, God. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do, God, so I'm going to have to look to you. I know that people think that pastors have it all together. I did growing up. I thought they were like the spiritual elite. 
but I've been in ministry for a little over 20 years now, and I've been around hundreds of pastors. And I've been around them when they let their guard down and, and be real. And I can tell you honestly, none of us have it together all the time. We're just like you. But what I've also found is that, in my mind, what marks the good pastors from the bad pastors is they're willing to pray this prayer. God, I have no idea what I should do. I need you and your guidance to help me in this time. And God's answer to Jehoshaphat when he prayed this prayer comes in verse 13. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their dependents, their wives and their children. In the middle of the congregation, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehiel, a prophet of God, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Manithah, a Levite from Asaph's descendants. And he said, Listen carefully, all Judah and all you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid or discouraged of this vast number, for the battle is not yours. It is God's. How many times in your life have you faced something terrible and felt like you were all alone in it? Friends, let me tell you, if you are committed to the Lord, and I mean really wholeheartedly devoted to Him, if you said, God, live your life through me, and I will live for you the rest of my life, if you surrender to Jesus in that way, then the eyes of the Lord are upon you and he will strengthen you. It is an ironclad promise in the word of God. And when that happens, when you surrender to him, when you become his child, the battle you're facing is not your battle. It's his. My little brother is five years younger than I am. He was getting bullied in school. We're both, you know, short, five foot six. My brother's a little taller than me now. He's about five eight. But he was a little, really little runt kid with a big mouth. And he was getting bullied at school a lot. Well, he told me about it, so big brother had to go to the school and straighten out the bullies. You know, God wants to hear when you're frightened, when you're facing the bullies and giants of your life. Because you know what? He's going to show up. He's going to show up and he's going to straighten things out. He loves the following prayer. I don't know what to do, but you do, Lord. And this battle is not mine anymore because I'm giving it to you. You fight for me. Back to the scripture. Verse 16. Jehaziel continues. Tomorrow, go down against them. You will see them coming up from the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeruel. And listen to this. This is God's promise coming from his prophet. Verse 17, you do not have to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Remember, these people really have no hope of winning militarily. They think that they might 
maybe slow the army down so that the women and children can flee north into Israel. But they know that they're probably going to die. So God sends them this encouraging word. And look at the reaction of the king. Verse 18, Then Jehoshaphat knelt low with his face to the ground. And all of Judah and the habits of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. Then the Levites and the sons of the Cothites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel, shouting loudly. They worshipped. That's good stuff right there. And it shows a fifth thing that Jehoshaphat did, and that he led the people in worship. They stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel loudly. Loudly. You know, sometimes we need to put some, some amplification in our prayers. You know, we'll, we'll yell, scream, throw things at a TV over a football game, but when we call out to God, we think we have to have a formal prayer and uh, on our knees with our hands, our head looking up or down. We think we need all of that. God wants to see what's in our hearts at that time. They stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel loudly. So what do, you think, what do you think happened the next day? How many Israelites do you think were lost in that battle? Well, let's find out. Verse 20, In the morning they got up early and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. Tekoa is about 12 miles from Jerusalem. Pretty easy hike. It's all downhill. And before the hike started, the text says, as they were about to go out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. And now the next verse. When he consulted with the people and appointed some to sing for the Lord and some to praise the splendor of his holiness, when they went out in front of the armed forces, they kept singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for his faithful love endures forever. I don't know if you've ever considered the power of praise and the power of singing. But it's, it's one of the greatest weapons we have. In verse 22 it says, At the moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir, who came to fight against Judah. And they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished with the inhabitants of Mount Seir, they helped destroy each other. Apparently, there's hidden power in singing, in praising God. There's something something spiritually powerful about that that we forget about in this day. But let me ask you something. What is it they're trying to shut down in churches in certain places right now? Singing. Do you think there's a reason for that? Do you think there's a hidden back here where we can't see, hidden spirit back here that wants to shut down the praise of God? Something to think about. Because the enemy knows there's a power in praise. There's something that happens when we use our voices to make a melody to God. So you might consider this next time you're in trouble. Simply sing God's praise. 
Memorize a few hymns or a few, few worship songs. You know, when the enemy's coming in like a flood, you standing there firm, singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Nothing drives the devil more crazy than when you express yourself in faith like that. So I encourage all Christians, don't post your problem to Facebook. Don't whine about it on social media. Just praise God. Because no matter what situation you're in, he's always worthy of your praise. The sixth strategic thing that Jehoshaphat did was he appointed people to sing. So he just didn't ask people and hope. He ordered people to worship. God inhabits the praise of his people, and he needed God in front of his army right now. Now keep in mind that when Jehoshaphat ordered this, he has no idea what's going on on that battlefield. He has no idea that they're all out there clubbing and, and, and sword fighting and all that kind of stuff. He has no idea. He's thinking, I'm about to march into battle. We're going to have to fight. They just march along singing. Verse 24, when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked for the large army, but there were only corpses lying on the ground. And nobody had escaped. To review, big bad army coming against the people of God. The people didn't have any idea what to do, so they resolved to seek the Lord and to pray. They gathered together, they, they fasted and prayed, they heard a word from God from one of his prophets. Then they worshiped. Then they began to sing. Then God performed a miracle. And God wipes out their enemy. God comes through. But, not only that, there's more. In verse 25 it says that, Then Jehoshaphat and his people went to gather the plunder. They found them among them an abundance of goods on the bodies and valuable items. So they stripped them until no one could carry any more. They were gathering the plunder for three days because there were so much. They assembled in the valley of Barak on the fourth day, and there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, that place is still called the valley of Barak again, or today. Now, the Hebrew word Barak means blessing. That place that they thought they were going to die in instead became the valley of blessing. So we see Jehoshaphat's seventh strategic move was that he blessed and thanked God. And the rest, as they say, is history. Verses 27 through 30 tell of a great celebration, revival, and rededication to God. Now these verses tell us of this great revival. A terrible disaster that looked like it was going to ruin the nation and no one knows what to do. But one man, the king, stands up and says, I'm going to seek the Lord. I have no idea what I should do, Lord, but you know what I should do. He doesn't only just say this quick prayer and go upon his life. He, he asks the entire nation to join him. He asks the entire nation to, to join him in fasting and prayer and seeking God's face. 
God answers through his prophet, says, I got this. This battle is mine, and I encourage you to come and watch. And the people believe. They bow down and thank God in faith for what he's going to do. And they rise up and praise him with singing. Early the next morning, they sing the destruction of the army that was coming against him. And then they could help themselves to the spoils. But after all of that came the next thing, is that they rested. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the work of God that we forget that he also orders us to take a day of rest, to take a moment to rest, recuperate, and focus on him. That's what Sabbath day is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be that one day a week that we set aside and focus on God and just physical and end all physical work. Why does this, any of this matter for us today? It's not just for us personally. Because Ezra is trying to teach us how to rescue a nation. He's showing us that God is available and attentive during your darkest moments. God is there and he is aware. Ezra is also showing us, number two, that prayer is more powerful than any enemy. And again, when you don't know what to pray for, when you don't know how to pray, when, when there's nothing coming to your mind, coming out of your spirit, it just seems like you're in so much darkness you can't see any light at all. Just remember this. God, I don't know what to do, but you do. Let me follow you in this situation. Paul in the New Testament says that in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groans. And that's Romans 8.26. So when you're in that dark moment, you don't have the solution to your problem. You just have to stop and remember the one who does. We don't know what to do, so we look for you. It's a great prayer to memorize, and it works for any occasion. And in this story, Ezra's showing us that God is able to turn whatever comes against you against itself. One time I was working in an electronics factory when I was working through paramedic school, and a friend of mine, actually a lot of you have met him, his name's Kevin, he came here to preach once. He was studying to be a pastor, as I was, and Kevin is much more outspoken and vocal about things and would often put his foot in his mouth because he would say things rather inartly. He, he was just very, very blunt about things. and It got him into some trouble. Well, there was a woman on his line that didn't appreciate something he said, and she made an official complaint to human resources at the end of the day, and, and he was afraid that he was going to get walked out the next day um, and fired from this job. And this woman was a troublemaker. She had, she's one of those people that would turn people against each other and all that. So God led me. I was praying for Kevin that morning. He led me. He goes, I want you to go in, and I want you to walk through his whole department and pray. 
I'm like, well, that's silly. People will think I'm nuts if I'm walking through the, you know, the whole department and praying, and God's, God just had me do that. So I did. I walked through the apartment, or his whole department, and I was just touching chairs, and I was just praying God's peace and God's will be done, and that God's justice be made known, and, and just praying over the whole thing. So the, the day's rings, uh, the warning bell goes off for all, all of us to sit down at our chairs on the assembly lines, and management comes down, four of them, march down the thing, stop at Kevin, and then go next to him, to that woman, and walk her out the door. Apparently, she had spread rumors about one of the bosses having an affair, which was not true, and they finally had enough, and they fired her. God will come through for you if you just seek him during these times. He's able to turn whatever comes against you against itself. He can turn trials into triumphs, failures into learning lessons, enemies into friends or into providers for our every need. Isn't it great that God took everything that army brought with them and gave it to Israel on top of saving their lives? He's in this for you. And Ezra has finally shown that God can turn evil into good by allowing evil to destroy itself. You know, a lot of Christians right now are spreading things on social media that just aren't true. And it bothers me a lot because we shouldn't have to use the tactics of the other side to make our, to make our point. If you're spreading something you know isn't true or you haven't exactly researched it to see if it is true, then you're, just, you're, you're part of the problem. Just on the other side. But it doesn't make you right. So I would encourage you, and I know I'm probably speaking more to the younger crowd, but when, before you post something online, take five minutes to research it. Because you want to make sure that everything you say online brings glory to God. And if you post something you know is a lie, then you're trying to use evil to do good. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. In Romans 8, right after it tells us that the Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray for ourselves, Paul says, And we know that in all things, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You know, Jehoshaphat's enemies thought they were coming to steal, kill, and destroy. They didn't know that they were actually coming over to turn over their lives and personal possessions to the Israelites. And how that applies to us today is that we're all in here wearing masks, facing an enemy too small to see but too big to ignore. We've seen a lot of devastation from the coronavirus. We see even more consequences because of the social political upheaval that we see in our nation right now. Many of us are worried about our health. We're worried about losing loved ones. We're worried about our jobs. We're worried about our finances. We're worried about our taxes. We're worried about our rights. We're worried about equality. We have all these things that we're worried about. But Jesus didn't teach us to worry. In fact, he said quite the opposite. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
you know, one of the great things about God is that being all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present means he's already been to your tomorrow. He exists there as much as he exists right now. Time's a created thing. I've said that before, but science proves time's part of creation. So it's created by God. Therefore, he exists outside of it. He's already been there. He knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow. And he's already right now making a way for you to get through it. So trust in that. Trust in him, because worrying isn't going to do you any good. Let's all rise. My Lord God, I thank you for preserving this story about Jehoshaphat to remind us how and when to turn to you in those dark moments. There are a lot of things in our world right now that seems like the walls are crashing in. It seems like we're on a precipice and, and teetering over the edge until that, that moment that you know you're going to fall. That's how many of us feel right now. And we're just bracing ourselves for the, the sudden stop at the end. But Father, I just ask, Lord, that you just take away that fear, you take away that doubt, you take away the worry, the unbelief, and you replace it with the assurance. <clears throat> replace it with the assurance, with the faith, with the love that you would rather have us carry. Lord God, if we are Christians in this room right now, we're not equipped to carry that stuff. We're equipped according to our new nature to reflect that which saved us. Faith, hope, and love, and courage. Because we know you are bigger than anything that can come against us. Therefore, we love you, we trust you, and we ask that you help us to walk before you with confidence and humility, Lord, that you have got this. And that we are in the middle of your will and in the middle of your sovereign plan. Father God, I just bless your people right now with love, hope, joy, and peace. Take their eyes off the things of this world and let them focus on you. Just as Peter did, Father, as he walked across a stormy sea. Help us not to take our eyes off you and begin to sink, but help us to focus on you, to hold out our hand and say, Jesus, please save me. Because we will always Feel your hand come into ours and pull us into that boat. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I bless your people now. I ask, Father, that you give them an opportunity this week to show the love of Jesus, to show the confidence of their salvation, and to just shine the light of the gospel into someone's life. Father God, I thank you. I bless them now, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.